Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... Maverick film director Alex Cox returns to Little Atoms and talks about Alex Cox's introduction to film. Before we start the show, I just wanted to let you know that Little Atoms will be taking part in the inaugural London Podcast Festival at King's Place in King's Cross on Saturday the 24th of September. I'll be talking to The Guardian's own Hadley Freeman about her fantastic book, Life Moves Pretty Fast, which is about the lessons she learnt from watching 80s movies. So if you think we don't talk about dirty dancing and Ghostbusters enough on Little Atoms, this is the event you've been waiting for. Go to www.kingsplace.co.uk and search for Little Atoms there for tickets. And get in quick, this one's sure to sell out. Maverick British filmmaker Alex Cox is responsible for directing a host of acclaimed films, including Repo Man, Sid and Nancy, Straight to Hell, Walker and Highway Patrolman. From 1987 to 1994, he presented the acclaimed BBC TV series Movie Drone, bringing unknown or forgotten films to new audiences. He's also the author of X Films, True Confessions of a Radical Filmmaker, 10,000 Ways to Die, and The President and the Provocateur, which we've talked about on a previous Little Atoms. And he's written on the subjects of film for publications, including Sight and Sound, The Guardian, The Independent and Film Comment. And Alex's latest book is Alex Cox's Introduction to Film, A Director's Perspective, which we're going to be talking about today. Alex, welcome back. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. This book came out of... You were teaching at the University of Colorado film production and screenwriting. And so let's talk about how this book came out of that. Well, we were very short-staffed. In t- it was a popular programme, but we were perennially short-staffed. And so uh, even though I had been hired as a narrative production person, I ended up being asked to teach the intro class. And the intro class is a sort of beginning class that all, I imagine all film students have to take, but also because it qualified as a humanities course and all the students in the university, even if they're on a football scholarship, have to take uh, a humanities class or two. Many, many students would sign up for this. So it was mm-hmm. a big class. It was about 100 to 150 people. And so it came my turn to, to teach it. And I felt that the textbooks that were available were extremely large. I mean, they were huge, dense books about the size of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And, and they had clearly been written by people who'd never been on a film set and weren't very clear about how films were made. 
Um, and so I really couldn't find a textbook to assign for the course. And also I, f- I felt really that even if I had assigned one of those great big books, the students either wouldn't have bought it, or if they did shell out for it, they wouldn't have read it. So I prepared the course materials myself week by week and put them online. And at the end of the 16 weeks, because they're on a semester system, I had this mass of material, and I thought it should be a book. And mm-hmm. so I called the very nice uh, Eon Mills at uh, Old Castle at Camera Books and said, would you like to publish this book? And he said, yes. And so it became a book. And this, and my hope is that it can be uh, either a textbook or just a book for autodidacts who want to know a bit more about the history and, and terminology of film. We're going to go through the book, but first of all, I want to talk about something that crops up all the way through, and that's this thing that the filmmaker Peter Watkins called the monoform, a type of filmmaking. So tell us what that is and why that's particularly irksome to you. Well, Watkins is a very important filmmaker. I mean, although he hasn't made a lot of films, but he was, in the early 1960s, he was one of the young lions of British narrative. He made Culloden. Uh, for the BBC, and he followed that up with an even better and more important film, The War Game, Mm -hmm. which was about nuclear war, the consequences of nuclear war on the civilian population of this island. And it was so devastating and so accurate that it was banned by the BBC for many years. And Watkins' career uh, never recovered from from his, uh, his being a victim of censorship. And so among the other things that he's done is wandered the globe, he's written articles, he's made films in various countries, uh, and he wrote an essay at one point, which you can find on the internet, called Notes on the Media Crisis, uh, where he identifies two problems which affect not just narrative film, but anybody who's working for a broadcaster, say. One of the things... Uh, which he criticizes, is something he calls the universal clock, which is something that everyone who provides a film to a broadcaster, say in this country it might be the BBC, it might be Channel 4, if you're asked to provide an hour-long piece of television, you're actually only providing a 46-minute piece of television because the rest of that hour is going to be taken up by station identification, promotion of other uh, pieces of product that are on the channel later that evening, or commercials. So he's very concerned, one, about the compression of time into which filmmakers uh, or documentarians are expected to compress their works, but also he's concerned about what he calls the monoform, which is a sort of universal storytelling style of very rapid cuts and everything driven by music. Uh, And really, whether it's a documentary, whether it's a TV news broadcast, or whether it's a... uh, a feature film, the monoform seems to have come to dominate the way stories are told. And he considers that to be a very, that homogeneity to be very dangerous and very restricting. And certainly a lot of the films that I talk about in the book are at odds with the monoform. Say a film like 2001 doesn't, mm-hmm. wouldn't really fit the monoform model or the universal clock. And obviously another aspect of filmmaking where there's hegemony I guess is Hollywood we're going to be talking in the main in this book about films that are made in Hollywood although you do talk about other cinemas towards the end and we'll get there and even though films are you know they're made by a system by in one you know metaphorically speaking in one place films are also not made in a vacuum they're made in a certain context and that's the first thing you talk about as we get into this book so 
Let's talk about the context in which filming is made. Well, it's interesting because really, I mean, film is the original art form of the 20th century. And uh, one of the students, when I was teaching the course, complained that most of the films we watched had been made in the previous century. But there isn't really any way around that. <laughs> you know, it is the original art form of the last century and the, and the, and the art form of this century has yet to be discovered. So uh, I don't apologise for the fact that most of the films in the book are of a certain age. You need to be aware of those films before you can move on to consume or, or make new ones. It would be interesting to see a history of film or a course on cinema that only used stuff made in the 21st century. That would be a very, a very odd thing. Well, and unfortunately, a lot of people coming into this course or coming into the film or television business may only be aware of films that were made in this century. I mean, their, their experience of film may be limited to spandex superhero mm. films. And obviously the history of cinema is a great deal richer than that, but unless you're aware of that, you're going to be very limited in terms of what your references and what your source material will be. I mean, although when I was teaching in Colorado, it was like the major state university and the students were extremely bright and had very good written English skills, but there was a sort of a lack of historical knowledge. And I think that that's not something that's just limited to the state of Colorado. I think that's probably general and even worldwide, that history isn't really taught in any great depth. Uh, it certainly wasn't when I was at school. When I was at school, we learned about the Tudors, and that was it, you know. So um, the teaching of history is very limited, and in order to understand the cinema of the 20th century, you need to understand, you need to know a little bit about the history of the 20th century. And so what I propose to everybody who takes the course or reads the book is that they prepare their own timeline mm -hmm. of the 20th century and figure out when the wars took place, when the political assassinations took place, when the depressions and the recessions took place, because these are important things. And it is a little, it's a little troubling when when you're talking to a group of students who are very bright, you realise they don't know in which order the First World War and the Second World War and the Vietnam War took place. I want to talk about some of the, the changing restrictions that the filmmaking business has seen over the years, some of those being self-inflicted. We'll talk about self-censorship in a moment, but let's talk about... Although, again, this wasn't even strictly imposed on the filmmakers themselves. It was a sort of negotiation, the Hayes Code. That in the first, United States, yes, yes. indeed. So let's talk about that first sort of system of censorship. Well, in most countries, the, most countries have some form of state censorship. Uh, as we do, or film classification that's, that's established by the, the government of the day. But in the US, they never had that. Like in the US, they don't have a, a, a ministry of culture. There's no such thing in the United States. And so it was really done state by state and city by city. Films were censored or suppressed in a very arbitrary manner up until the Hollywood studios established their own production code which was known as the Hayes Code, after the man who first ran that body. And it was very interesting because the studios were able to establish essentially what could and could not be shown in an American film. At a certain point, uh, it became impossible to depict insubordination towards authority, ridicule the police, praise gangsters, show uh, any suggestion of sex. Um, so even married couples had to sleep in separate beds. And this persisted for many, many years. This persisted all the way through into the 1960s. And it was really only broken uh, in the mid-60s by the producer-director Roger Corman and then by a couple of very bold producers and directors specifically centering around Bonnie and Clyde. 
in 66, because when Bonnie and Clyde came out, it broke every rule mm-hmm. of the Hayes Code, literally breached every rule. And so while that had actually been a very beneficial thing for the studios, because it had meant that they were able to dictate what got shown in the cinema, and even independent producers who always struggled to get distribution found themselves limited by the provisions of the Hayes Code. And so it was a wonderful way for Hollywood to kind of dictate what got shown. And even now in the United States, the most dreadful thing that can happen to your film is for it to receive the NC-17 mm-hmm. classification, because that means essentially that many major cinema chains won't play it. And uh, no matter how interesting and how good the film, it's a way of, of really keeping independent producers and independent production out of the mainstream cinemas. I'm Caitlin Doty, and you're listening to Little Adams, a podcast about ideas and culture. I want to say something about that original studio system. Obviously, films are still made by studios, and some of those names from the you know the 30s and the 40s and 50s still exist in different forms, obviously under different ownership. But people will be aware that you know they'll go to see a film at the beginning; it will tell you who the studio is that made that film. But obviously. Originally, that system was a lot different. Let's talk about the studio system. Well, the studios originally had a different focus depending on which studio it was. Disney obviously made films for children. MGM made musicals. Republic, a uh, a studio which has gone now, made mostly westerns. And RKO, which was at one time a very important studio, made somewhat lower-budget quality films. So RKO was a studio that made Citizen Kane. And, and now I think that that, that specialisation tends to have disappeared. I don't think that there any studio specialises in anything now other than superhero films. You talk about Orson Welles, the, the director, the, the auteur, as we'll get on to the auteur theory in a minute, of Citizen Kane as somebody that, I mean, was sort of crushed by that studio system. He wasn't really able to accommodate himself within it, was he? No, it's interesting because I talk about three directors who faced that same challenge. Uh, Wells, Dennis Hopper and Charles Burnett, mm-hmm. uh, each of whom made an extraordinary first film, a first film which was extremely highly regarded. In Wells' case, obviously, it was Citizen Kane. Dennis Hopper, it was Easy Rider. Charles Burnett, it was Killer of Sheep. And yet, despite the critical praise or the commercial success of their first films, none of them was able to find a home in the Hollywood studio system. They all found themselves blacklisted in one way or another, which was a great shame because they were really great American filmmakers and they deserved to have a home somewhere. Um, But all three found themselves wandering around the globe, especially Wells, of course, Mm -hmm. who was famous for doing exactly that. And both Wells and Hopper had an alternate career as actors. Dennis perhaps sensibly took all that acting money and put it in the bank. Um, But Orson Welles took that money and he put it into the films that he was making. And so he was constantly in production on incomplete films, some of which are still incomplete. Obviously, there were people who were able to be accommodated in that system. You talk particularly about John Ford in this book. So let's talk about him, somebody who had a long career within the studio system. Yeah, I mean, two of the directors I talk about, Ford and Kurosawa, were... Well, especially Kurosawa, really, because Kurosawa worked mostly for Toho. Mm -hmm. And Toho are quite a difficult entity to deal with. I mean, they're at least as difficult as any Hollywood studio. And part of the genius of Kurosawa is that he was able to work within that studio system. Ford, although he he started out working for the studios, he really struggled against it. And he and Marion C. Cooper, who was the the auteur behind King Kong, Mm -hmm. among other films, set up their own company, Argosy, in an attempt to make independent films. But they, as most filmmakers 
discovered still had to rely on the studios for distribution. And so even though they'd broken free of the production aspect of, stu of the studios and they owned the copyright of their films, they were obliged to go to RKO for distribution uh, on increasingly uh, penurious terms. So although the Argosy period for Ford produced some really great films, it didn't really make them very much money. Before we talk about what happened to the studios and the demise of it, which you've already hinted at mentioning the, so the rise of the independence in the late 60s and the 70s, I want to talk about another one of the issues with it, which is this idea of vertical integration. So let's talk about what that is. Well, at the time, the vertical integration of the cinemas or of cinema in the US consisted of studios which made films, distributed them and exhibited them. So all three aspects of the way films were made and reached an audience were owned by the studios. And so there were cinemas called The Fox and The Paramount and still are, you know. But uh, a thing called the Paramount Decision in the United States, uh, it was a, um, a, a legal case that was decided against the studios and they were forced to divest themselves of the cinemas. And even to this day, strictly speaking, the American studios don't own the cinemas where their films play. But obviously very, very powerful media companies like NBC, Universal and Viacom are able to reach accommodations with the exhibitor that essentially shut out independent films. So although the vertical integration of the studios ended with the Paramount decision, it never really ended because now especially the studios seem to control just about every aspect of production and distribution. You've mentioned, as I said, this point, late 60s, early 70s, so there's that decision about the vertical integration of the studios and the cinemas. Also, the Hayes Code is consistently being chipped at by filmmakers. What else changes? What was the atmosphere like at, at that time for filmmakers? Well, really, it's a little earlier than that, and it's, and it's all thanks to Roger Corman. All down to Roger Corman, because there were a couple of guys uh, who had a company called AIP. They were like... Uh, lawyers essentially and they were making independent films and really marketing them to drive-ins because although the, st although the studios tended to control uh, exhibition to a large extent in the in the cities but drive-in cinemas were looking for a lot of movies and rapid turnover and cinemas in general wanted to have more choice than the studios were were offering and so Corman started his career as a director for AIP doing like you know movies about you know monsters and teenage rebels and, and that kind of thing and then he began a series of films based on the works of Edgar Allan Poe, horror films mm -hmm. uh, often starring Vincent Price and these were an enormous success and Corman was able to kind of step outside the AIP world and create his own studio uh, which had a variety of names over the years and he employed uh, on their first project just about Everybody who was a major film director or actor mm -hmm. in the 70s and 80s. He gave their first assignment to Francis Coppola, to Martin Scorsese, to Robert De Niro, to Jack Nicholson, to Dennis Hopper, to uh, Brian De Palma, to Monty Hellman. Uh, and that was as a producer, whereas, whereas he, at the same time he was a prolific director. So we have this, we have this one guy, Roger Corman, to thank for the creation of what is sometimes called the New Hollywood, but I think the New American Cinema is a better term for it because it wasn't really Hollywood at all. Mm -hmm. It was outside of Hollywood and employed a lot of people who couldn't find work there. He would endeavour to shoot films in, was it 14 days? He, I mean, he, when I was working for him, 
uh, I did a film that he was the executive producer of, and, and the producer and I were planning to do it in 12 days. And Roger says, you know, a good film normally takes 15 days. And so we go, okay, well, we'll add three days to the shooting schedule. And, of course, Corman was, like, such a prolific and experienced and savvy filmmaker that sometimes he could finish a film early. Mm-hmm. And if he could, then he'd squeeze another one in. You know, so if <laughs> they, they were filming two days yeah, if they the weekend. Yeah, in 13 days, they'd shoot another one on the weekend. <laughs> so... Just to finish off this section then, let's talk about... We were talking about what changed at that point. What then changed again? Because obviously things changed probably, you know, the late 80s, early 90s in the Hollywood system. And obviously things are not as they were in the 70s now. Things are a lot different now. What changed again? Well, I think that, that what was going on when the studios became interested, say, in financing independent films, whether it was The Last Movie by Dennis Hopper or... Tulane Blacktop by Monty Hellman or Repo Man, which Mm -hmm. I directed. They were really trying to do two things. They were trying to get around the unions because the craft unions were very strong Mm -hmm. and and as studios they were obliged to work with them. But also they were trying to figure out how independent films were made. And as soon as they'd figured that out by seeing the way that Tulane Blacktop had got done or the way Repo Man had got done, they set up their own faux independent films like Universal had focus features mm-hmm. and all the studios had their own little fake independent brand or a couple of fake independent brands. And so for a few years, like any film that you saw with John Cusack in it was one of these fake independent films made by a studio. And at a certain point, they decided, OK, that's enough of that. You know, we're making money off these, but we're not making enough money. So we're going to reduce our inventory. Uh, and the head of um, Viacom, a diabolical individual called Philippe Domont, at one point announced that the enormous success of Transformers justified the studio's reduction of inventory and their decision to make fewer films. So when the studios say, oh dear, piracy is really hurting us, it's total nonsense because they've made a decision to make fewer and fewer films and spend more and more money on marketing. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Alex Cox about his introduction to film, a director's perspective. And Alex, in this second part of the show, I want to look at the, I guess, the nuts and bolts of filmmaking. And to start that off with, let's talk about this idea of the mise-en-scene, which is basically anything that's on the screen. It's what you see, isn't it? Yeah. Mise-en-scene is what you see. It's, it's interesting that all these words were, most of these words that we use in the context of the cinema were invented by the French like mise-en-scene and the auteur, uh, montage. You know, they're all French words because the French were thinking about film language probably before anybody else mm-hmm. was actually thinking of in concrete terms about what it was. And mise-en-scene actually could apply to the theatre as well or even to a painting. But it's what you see. You know, it's the work of the camera crew and the lighting designer and the art department and the director. It's how it, all of that stuff fits together. And so the mise-en-scene of 2001 was one thing and the mise-en-scene of uh, Dirty Pretty Things is something else. 
you know. And so, um, in, but in each case, films have a mise en scène, and the, we have the French to thank for identifying that. So it's it's really it's what you see and what choices are made, why one film look, looks one way, why a film like Two Thousand and One is very austere and moves slowly and is very very reliant on visual effects and why another film like Dirty Pretty Things has an urban environment and mm-hmm. moves faster and is more gritty and, and the acting is of a different style. All of that, you know, so the actors become part of the mise-en-scene because the actors, too, are at the service of the, of the film, but really I think it's, more, it's a term that's used more to describe the visual aspect. Let's talk about the, the auteur theory then you've directed films and without wanting to you know to suggest that the entire artistic vision of a film wasn't your own how did we come to believe that the director was the sort of primary focus of filmmaking well film is a hierarchical process it it, kind of has to be because decisions need to be made and they need to be made quickly and on a daily on a daily basis on a minute by minute basis and somebody has to make those decisions now usually it's the director and if the director has a body of work and people looking at it start to see similarities between the films or other aspects of the film that seem to be uniquely tied to that director then that director may end up being labeled an auteur an author the author of the film so if you liken a film to a christmas tree you know the director is the fairy on the top of the christmas tree I mean, the Christmas tree is covered with baubles and they are all beautiful and, and they are all necessary for the, for the overall thing that is the Christmas tree. But it's the fairy on top of the Christmas tree that says what's going to happen next. Not always the director. Sometimes the studio head is the, uh, is the auteur or the studio itself. And so if you think about a Disney film or you think about The Wizard of Oz, I mean, the first example I give in the book of a film which one would watch all the way through is The Wizard of Oz, mm-hmm. which, where the director is not the auteur. The, the directors. There yeah, was there numerous directors. Five directors or six directors on The Wizard of Oz. They keep getting fired and replaced and, uh, or, or being passed on to other films. Uh, the principal director was removed and given to Gone with the Wind instead. Um, so in, in a film like Wizard of Oz, it's hard to say the director is the auteur, but you can certainly say that the studio which chose to make the film is the auteur, or in the case of Disney. you know, Walt Disney wasn't a director, but he was certainly the auteur of those films. Or, or to give a more contemporary example, I mean, say a, a wealthy movie star like Harrison Ford, when he shows up on set, he decides when he comes to work, when he goes home, what they're going to shoot, what the angles are going to be, you know, and everybody just jumps. And so in, in, in that instance, you know, when you watch a film like Clear and Present Danger, you know, who's the auteur of that film? Uh, is it the director or is it the star? I want to go through some of the roles in the filmmaking process then. So let's start off with editing, which... I mean, it's certainly become a truism nowadays to say that editing is the place where the actual filmmaking really happens. Yeah, I mean, I say I'm going to reveal a secret when I say that, but it's not a secret at all. I think most people know that, yeah. (laughs) So, well, let's talk about why the editing is so important. Well, because what you do in a film on set is you create the raw material. Um, You work together as a group uh, with the crew and with the actors to, to come up with the raw material that the film will be. But by the end of the shoot, you've got many, many hours of material and you're going to edit that down to ideally to 85 minutes or 90 minutes of extraordinary quality, you know. And the person who's responsible for that is the editor. And now that editing is, in a sense, so easy because the, it used to, editing used to be reliant on very heavy industrial equipment 
in the days of film. And so you could really only edit film in certain major cities mm -hmm. like London or Paris or San Francisco or New York or Los Angeles, you know, where that equipment existed. But now editing can be done on a laptop. And so on the one hand, there's a tendency to think, well, maybe the director can edit the film. But even then, it, perhaps that's not a good idea because if you have an editor whose specific assignment is to be the editor, then you have two pairs of eyes watching that process. You have the editor and you have the director coming in and making suggestions and going away again. And it becomes more, the collaboration becomes more intense and more valuable. I mean, I guess one of the reasons why people might not in the past have, have considered the editing to be that important is because, you know, one of the uh, the aspects of the industrial nature of it, as you described, was that it was, to all intents and purposes, invisible. Like, good editing was considered editing that you, you couldn't necessarily notice. It was just there for the function of the filmmaking. But one of the sort of side effects of, of the ease of editing has made it a lot more self-conscious. People doing, you know, editing that becomes part and parcel of the of the storytelling in a much more obvious way. Is that, I mean, is that a good thing, do you think? Well, it depends on the film. I mean, I think you could, I mean, there are films where it's all seamless, where nothing draws attention to itself. Not the cinematography, not the acting, not the, not the editing, not the production design. And then there are other films, I mean, like think about a film like Fat City. And then, there's, then there are films um, like Dick Tracy with the same production designer, mm -hmm. Richard Silbert, where the production design draws enormous attention mm -hmm. to itself and is the main feature of the film. So, and, and it's a very entertaining film. So it's not like this one is right and one is wrong, but certainly I think that when we did, when I directed Sid and Nancy, say, a lot of the quality of Sid and Nancy has to do with the editor, David Martin, mm -hmm. you know, who had to take all that material we shot because we had a very long shoot. And, and, you know, compress that down into less than two hours and yet does it in a seamless manner which doesn't necessarily draw your attention to how talented that guy is. Yeah, I mean, you do talk about a particular scene in, in the book where you've shot in the Chelsea Hotel and then have to continue that same scene within a studio, and that is a seamless piece of filmmaking. Yes, and that's and that's the I mean, and that's thanks to the the cinematographer Roger Deakins uh, lighting it and shooting it in a similar way. It's thanks to the production designers working to create an environment that reflects uh, the Chelsea Hotel in terms of its color scheme and its look, and it's and it's down to David in terms of how he cuts it together, so that you don't you're not aware that some of those scenes are shot in. In the real place and some of them were shot on a soundstage 3,000 miles away uh, five weeks later. Let's talk about production design then. So that's, we're talking about building the set, dressing the set, dressing the cast, all if of those sort of aspects. Set, because of course you might not build yeah. the set, you might, be in a, you might be in a real location which you, which you can't change at all but you can only dress with certain props and, and, and pieces of furniture or you might be able to go into an existing location and paint the walls. So there are all these possibilities. And that's, the, that's done by what the person that used to be called the art director and is now called the production designer. A very important role. Cinematography. So let's talk about, I guess, some technical stuff about focal lens and aspect ratios and stuff. How important is the cinematography to the process? Well, I mean, obviously the obviously cinematography the is You don't have a film if you don't have cinematography. Film, but. film is a visual medium, <laughs> although, I think, although I think that film only actually really kicks off. I mean, I do talk in the book about some silent films, yeah. like Dr. Caligari, uh, Metropolis. But I think that the cinema really only kicks off when sound 
arrives. When colour arrived, you know, filmmakers continued to work in black and white, and mm-hmm. still do to a limited extent. But when sound came in, it was ubiquitous. Nobody made silent films once sound was available. And so it's really the, it's the combination of, of the visual and, and the aural that, for me, is cinema. But when people go to the pictures, again, sometimes the sound design is so subtle that they're unaware of it. And sometimes the cinematography really jumps out at you. I mean, there's a tendency, I think, now to have very showy cinematography and, and to have rather kind of familiar and, and, and repetitive uh, colour schemes in films. That is obviously the work of the, the cinematographer, the lighting designer or gaffer, and, uh, and the art department. Teal and orange yeah. are the things that you see over and over again. I remember yeah. reading about this an article on the internet about this. It's bizarre, Why is that? What, what's the what's the purpose? It's just a contemporary trope, you know. I mean, it's just been adopted by so many directors and 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 DPs that that yeah, this whole sort of you alternate between these warm oranges and stuff for some scenes, and then the cold austere blues and steels for the bad guy's lair and that kind of thing. Yeah, no, it's just become it's tedious, isn't it? But it's just a contemporary trope. It'll go away. I'm Arthur I. Miller, and you're listening to Little Adams, a podcast about ideas and culture. You've already mentioned sound design, but let's talk about the scoring of films, but also diegetic sound, which is sound that happens within the scene or within that natural sound within the frame, whether that's sound effects or music coming out of a radio or something. You have less. I want to talk about your your own opinions about that sort of sound design, because you talk about like found sound in terms of like soundtracks and things which you're not particularly keen on. Well, you mean found sound? You mean that sound that's been licensed from yeah. other movies like Tarantino? Yes, oh, that's exactly. Disgraceful, yeah. That's absolutely disgraceful. You know, I mean, you should employ a composer to write new music for your film. You know, and not just license a bunch of Morricone because you got all the money in the world. They did finally employ Morricone on on the latest film, didn't they, to do yeah. a little bit? Yeah. But yeah, has always weirdly been ha- had something against, specifically against hiring somebody to score the film for him, which I think is a, is a very odd. Well, it's a bit like science. Then there are some directors who think they can write their own music for the film, like John Carpenter. Yeah, you know. But I think that tends to be vanity, doesn't it? Really, I mean, I think we should all stick every, you know, like, as they say in, in in Peru, every pig has its own corral, you know. And I think we should stay in our corral, you know. So I don't tend to. I mean, having hired a sound designer or having hired a, a cinematographer or a composer, I think you should defer to them to a large extent and to the actors too because everybody who gets hired to do their specialised job knows more than you do. If you're the director, you're a generalist. You know, you have to look at the overall picture. But everybody who has their individual role is far more specialised and aware of what's needed in that space than you are. Somebody like Stanley Kubrick would probably disagree with that. He would probably disagree with that, and he would have taken great interest in 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 a number of areas of of the production. But then he was making films over months and months, Mm -hmm. you know, where he could get in there and be a metiche and mess about with all the department heads. But I mean, that's why, say, Ken Adam, who had done Doctor Strangelove, didn't want to work with him on Two Thousand and One because he was sick of him. You know, that he thought the guy meddled too much and didn't give him his head. And so instead of doing um, the design of 2001, he went off and did James Bond movies. But at least he was right in that case, because he ended up sacking the, uh, the composer that he'd hired to oh, score Oh, the composer of... Well, indeed. The com- and that was an interesting situation too, wasn't it? Because sometimes the director... This is actually a common thing, I think, that the director falls in love with the temporary music. And so a composer called Alex North 
had been hired to write a score for 2001, which I think actually you can find on the internet. You can actually watch mm-hmm. some of the Alex North score, or you can listen to some of the Alex North score. But Kubrick, kind of, even though North had come over from the United States to London to compose the music or, or, or to, to conduct the orchestra, you know, he went into the, the cutting room and he, and he heard the Blue Danube playing and he thought, oh, no, <laughs> it's all over. But it did work, didn't it? I well, mean, the, the use of classical music. I mean, I was just going to say that the Guyans Adagio, when they, they first cut to the to the ship on its way to on its way to Jupiter, I think that's my favourite use of music in in all of cinema. I think Marvelous. I think that scene is incredible. Marvellous, and the and the Ligeti music, the stuff that mm-hmm. plays on the moon, just lovely. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, there's no. It's not that. It's not that that, that there's any right or wrong. And in other instances. Uh, Kubrick did use a composer, like, mm. you know, but or or but then again, think of what he did on on uh, Clockwork Orange, where he had uh, Walter, aka Wendy Clarence, to do the music. Well, Carlos, sorry, 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 uh, Walter Wendy uh, Carlos to do the music. But still, a lot of the time it was an adaptation yeah. of of music by Purcell or by Beethoven. Screenwriting. You started off as a screenwriter. You've continued to to write scripts throughout your career. In this book, you particularly look at the. Um, the adaptation for Blade Runner of um, Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. So let's let's talk about that as an example. Well, it's interesting because the uh, it's really I mean that's a chapter on screenwriting, but also on adaptation. Yes, and I just use that as an example. I mean, you could have picked other other words. You could you could pick a, a Clockwork Orange and talk about the adaptation of that. But I think Blade Runner is interesting because it's not a film I particularly like, but I really like the book, and so the choices that were made to strip away the most interesting aspects of the book and leave us with a rather conventional kind of detective-y science fiction thing. To the, the, the hero couldn't have a wife because a hard-boiled cop can't have a wife, you know. Those kind of really boring and bland studio decisions, you know. It's, it's interesting to see how they got made, but it's also interesting to, to compare the original scripted dialogue of Rutger Hauer at the end of the movie with what he actually said. What he improvised. Yes, with what he improvised and what he came up with. And what he came up with is so much better than the scripted dialogue. It's a good lesson to writers, including me, that you shouldn't be too precious about things. You write the script, but then you give it up. Mm-hmm. You, know, you have to give it up and let it go. You know, because the director's going to have the script, the actors are going to have the script, and they're going to bring things to it that you you wouldn't you would never have dreamed, and they're going to liken the whole of their life to tears in rain. You know, and you'll watch that, and if you're a good writer, you'll go, "Ooh, I'm glad they hired that actor." Well, I was going to ask what some of your your own experiences had been of that, of being the person that had written the scripts, and then perhaps you know seeing what somebody else did with it. Well, usually the scripts that I've written haven't been made unless by me. Most of the scripts that get written never go into production. And so though I've written scripts for like Doctor Strange and the Keith Moon story and that kind of thing, but they've never seen the light of day. The, I think that the only script that I wrote that was directed by another director was Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, mm-hmm. and I haven't seen that, so I don't know how it turned out. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great 
great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This is Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny, today I'm talking to Alex Cox, and we're talking about Alex Cox's introduction to film, a director's perspective. And Alex, in the last part of the show, I want us to talk, well, to begin talking about genre, subgenres. Some go in and out of fashion, obviously, I might be interested to talk about why that is, but I wanted to particularly talk about, there are four stages that you describe of genre film production. Oh yes, it's a guy called Thomas Schatz, who's a very, very good and perceptive writer, and in his book, Hollywood Genres, he talks about four stages in the development of the genre. He talks about the experimental, in which the conventions get established, the classic, in which the genre is entirely known and accepted by its audience, refinement in which the genre expands its range and new things start to become involved in it and subgenres appear and then the baroque in which the genre becomes mannerist and self-reflexive and becomes a parody of itself and so and it, which seems to me to be a very good take on the way that a genre develops and enters into its decadent phase. Well, let's perhaps talk about those stages in terms of the development of the Western, which is something that you obviously have a particular interest in. Well, I guess, I mean, the experimental phase of the Western would be the early Westerns made by John Ford and made by uh, especially Raoul Walsh Mm -hmm. with The Big Trail. I mean, The the Big Trail is a very ambitious, grandiose, expensive Western shot simultaneously in 70mm and 35mm in 1930, the very beginning of the talking pictures starring John Wayne, you know. We could think of that as an experimental talky Western, because even though they'd been silent Westerns, but they're still kind of establishing the genre and figuring out what it's going to be like. And so the hero ends about to get married to the heroine at the end of the movie, which is something comparatively rare in later Westerns. And then the classic phase of the Western, I guess, would be Stagecoach and Fort Apache and the cavalry films, the films that were made in the 40s. In the 50s, we get into the refined area of the western where it starts to get a bit more complex and ford made the searchers and there were all those noirish 
kind of anti-Westerns um, by Anthony Mann and mm-hmm. Bud Budica. And then in the 1960s comes the Baroque phase of the Italian Western where they literally take the genre, turn it on its head. The heroes behave like villains. The hero often gets killed or ends up in a disastrous situation. And then the genre dies. And so um, I don't know what phase we're in uh, in terms of the superhero movie, but I hope we're in the Baroque phase and don't die soon. (laughs) Um, I want to talk about documentary for a little while. And you talk about lots of different styles of documentaries, from the classic Ken Burns TV documentaries to sort of indie homemade stuff like loose change again what for you makes a good documentary there are certain tropes that you talk about that you're not keen on yeah i mean for me a good documentary is not led by some guy you know i mean as much as i you know as much as i mean morgan spurlock and michael moore might be really great individuals but i do not wish to see them i'm interested in what they have to say but I'm more in, I'm more of a sorrow and the pity kind of guy. You know, mm-hmm. I like to just see the images, see the interviewees. Maybe we'll have a little voiceover helping us through. So in that sense, Loose Change is a really classic documentary because that guy who made Loose Change isn't on camera mm-hmm. telling us what to think. I mean, obviously, every documentary tells you what to think, but they do it through montage and sometimes through narration. But I think uh, it, it, it has a little bit to do with the kind of the reality inverted commas uh, nature of things like reality television that everything has to be kind of personality driven now and so as if the the contents of uh, Michael Moore's documentary uh, about firearms or about the aftermath of 9-11 or whatever aren't sufficiently interesting to carry themselves but really they are I think a documentary is is, is a, a documentary is best when the when the presenter really keeps their distance and doesn't impose themselves upon the thing. But that's a personal taste matter, you know. I mean, it doesn't have to be that way. Things can be any way. I mean, we could also use Lose Change as a good example of something that's... The documentary form itself, its very form, gives it some sort of authority. Um, That voiceover is also giving the film a certain authorial authority. But, of course, it's a film with a very particular point that it wants to get across. Yes, I mean, it has... I mean, the take of Loose Change is that the the, the events of 9-11 are essentially uh, a deliberate act on the part of the American military political establishment in order to justify military action across the globe indefinitely. And uh, that's the belief of, of the filmmaker. And, interestingly, there are at least four different versions of the documentary in which he refines that, Mm -hmm. changes it, and although it does suffer from the monoform vice of music, there's even one version, I think it's the third version, where if you get the DVD, you can turn the music off, and so you can watch Loose Change without the music, which I wish more documentarians would do that too. I wish wish Michael Moore would do a a version of one of his documentaries where you could cut him out, you know, turn him off and just see what it's about, you know. Sorrow and the pity is the way to go. I think that that's interesting, that idea of... Because that's, a doc, again, Loose Change is a documentary that somebody's made, it's been made, you know, again, without wanting to run down. The filmmaker's pretty much at home on laptops and things, using found footage off of the internet and off of Google Maps and things. Yeah. That idea of them being able to 
constantly revise it. Yes. It's sort of both interesting and troubling, I guess. But, I mean, I think that's obviously the way things are going to go. But I think filmmakers revise their films as well. I mean, think about well, Oliver Stone. Blade the, Runner. <laughs> yeah, Blade Runner. There's three versions of Blade Runner. Oliver Stone has, uh, you know, the only version of JFK you can see now is this really long one that Oliver, Oliver Stone kind of, you know, put back all the outtakes, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I've done two versions of Straight to Hell. Um, Apocalypse Now Redux, the mm-hmm. best scene in Apocalypse Now uh, re- is in the Redux version where Marlon Brando puts Martin Sheen in a shipping container. And and so I think film is plastic, you know. Film film doesn't have to be one thing or another. I mean, that's why I was never against colorizing films. I always, I mean, I've seen a wonderful Russian colorized version of Things to Come, which just looks gorgeous. And if you don't like the color, turn, turn that down. knob and it'll disappear. <laughs> um, as I mentioned at the beginning, we've obviously been talking in the main about. Hollywood cinema in inverted commas um, but you do also you have a chapter about European cinema in the book and, and, I know, and that's a bit because that's really because I was talking to an American audience because yeah. for us to talk about European cinema is a bit ludicrous because Europe is a, so many different countries and so many different cinemas well I wanted to particularly talk about again about there's a chapter about Latin American cinema yeah. and particularly because you've had plenty of experience working in Latin American cinema so let's talk about some of your experiences let's talk about that cinema through your experiences, isn't it? I guess. Well, I mean, I've directed a couple of films in Mexico, um, and I've and I've worked with with people from other Latin American countries, and I've also worked as an actor in Mexican films as well. And uh, so, my impression of, of of it is that they still they really do respect the idea, or at least they used to respect the idea of the director as auteur. I, I, I did notice that in Mexico that you were if you were directing a film in Mexico, you were the jefe. You know, whereas if you were doing it in London or in Los Angeles, the crew would be a bit reticent at first, you know, because they wouldn't know really if you were if you were really the director or if you were just some Wally that had been brought in and the producer was really in charge, you know. And so it's interesting, but in Mexico they do, or at least they did, up until a certain point, have this notion of of the director as the authority. And if you look at the films of, so I do talk in there about the films of Luis Estrada, mm-hmm. who's made four really, really interesting political films in Mexico, which are meant to be comedies. But normally about two-thirds of the way through, he forgets that they're comedies and they get really heavy. So it's very interesting in that regard as well. If you see his film El Infierno, Hell, it's supposed to be a comedy about this guy who gets deported from, from America and goes back to Mexico and, and uh, there's no work, and so he gets involved in the drug trade. And for the first third, it's really quite funny. But boy, by the end, it's just a nightmare. So that's an interesting form of cinema because he's not locked into the notion of this film has to be a comedy. Mm. And it was a very successful film in Mexico. So the audience isn't locked into the idea that a genre has to be only one thing. A funny film has to be funny all the way through. It can start out funny and get very serious. To a certain extent, for want of a better word, foreign film, and I include European and British film in that, anything that's in opposition to Hollywood cinema is in somehow in the, in the shadow of Hollywood cinema just via its huge output, but also historically various trade agreements and things about deals of what films could be shown. That must be particularly harsh in Mexican cinema, I would have thought. It's tough for the Mexicans because, of course, they live in the shadow of the US to such a huge extent, at least until, at least until Trump builds his wall, you know. <laughs> But at the moment, I mean, it's, I mean, Mexico, yes, certainly. And, and it is also possible, just as they did with the British directors, it's possible for the studios to cherry-pick directors. So people like Alfonso Cuaron will get picked up, you know, and taken over to America and put to work there. So in a way, they do lose some of their best talents. 
Although I'm not sure Cuarón's one of their best talents, but but then there are other people who remain. You know, I mean Estrada, uh, Ripstein, a number of directors. You know, uh, who worked in Mexico very successfully. Luis Buñuel never had a career in the U.S. You know, so so it's an interesting dichotomy that on the one hand the studios are always there like circling predators. You know, going to snap you up and take you away. But then there are other people who never get snapped up and taken away and get to continue making making really interesting work in their in their native land, like Lindsay Anderson was here. Mm-hmm. We're nearly out of time, but I, I just wanted to finish off with a final question about, you know, what of the future, where is film going? But actually now you've now you've raised the spectre of, of Donald Trump. I think it's it's difficult to divide that also from just the future of your adoptive country, I guess. You know, where is <laughs> what's the future hold? Oh, well in that sense, I don't know. I'm more afraid of Hillary Clinton than I am of Trump. I mean Trump's an unknown quality, but if you look at what Clinton did to Libya and this awful protege of hers, Victoria Newland, who may end up being the Secretary of State, what the disaster that she created in Ukraine. I, I think that Watkins film The War Game, we may be revisiting The War Game for real within the next eight years, and that's a bit of a pity because I was kind of thinking I might make it through my life without perishing in a nuclear war, and I'm not so sure now. <laughs> that's a rather... And on that happy note... Yeah, <laughs> unhappy point for us to finish. However, I've been talking to Alex Cox about his introduction to film, A Director's Perspective, which is out now from Camera Books. Alex, it's been a pleasure to talk to you again. It's been really nice talking to you, and thank you for having me again. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, Did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.